and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Paul Hirsch. Now, Paul is a film editor that worked on some amazing movies over the past 50 years. In fact, he won the Oscar for editing for Star Wars, A New Hope, and he also worked on Empire Strikes Back. He talks about getting involved with George Lucas. In fact, he's also worked on Carrie with Brian De Palma. He talks about working with Brian De Palma. John Hughes, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Ferris Bueller. He's worked on some amazing movies. We talk about those as well. Uh, we touch upon his memoirs a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. Really interesting guy. You get a good perspective on some of the movies he's worked on. In fact, he is kind of responsible for some major developments in Star Wars. We'll talk about that during the interview, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paul. So, Paul, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, but before, you know, before we look back and talk about your career and your, your memoirs, 2020 was definitely an experience, uh, and it's made a lot of changes, you know, in the movie industry, a lot of streaming now. Um, being, you know, a film editor, how is that affecting... I, I would imagine it wouldn't affect your career if you're still working on film, but just the experience of seeing a film in the theater, you think that's gone forever now? No, I don't. Um, I was just reading about it today, and I, I think... Uh, Watching a movie at home is a different experience uh, from watching the same movie in the theater. Right. Um, going to a, to a movie theater is a night out. It's an experience. It's, it's an entertainment in itself, apart from the movie that you're seeing. Uh, being going out and, and you know, uh, finding seats. Oh, there's two over there. Let's go, you know, and... Right. Uh, get the popcorn and so forth. And, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a whole, and then you watch a, a comedy and everyone laughs together or you, or, you know, some uh, drama, some great revelation, everybody gasps at the same time. I, I think that uh, that communal experience is part of the movie going uh, attraction, you know? So uh, I've seen, I've seen films projected when, you know, like when I go to, to, uh, on a preview to, to show one of our film, one right. of my films, um, that we'll do a sound check. So we go into the empty theater, we run the picture and it's a barren experience because there's nobody there, you right. know? And I've always said, everybody says, oh, wait, oh, wait, we see it on the big screen. And for me, the big screen means nothing because if you sit close to a small screen, it's just as big as if you're in a theater right. and you're in the last row. I mean, so, the size of the screen is not what's at play here. What's at play is the size of the audience. Right. And, you know, it's the big audience that, that you crave. Uh, when I did, when I worked on Star Wars, uh, I met a guy whose father was involved in exhibition in the South somewhere. And he told me that uh, somebody called up the theater and they said, you know, is, is the eight o'clock show sold out? And they said, uh, uh, no, it's not. He says, oh, uh, when can I come see it where it will be sold out? Because you right. wanted that that group experience, yeah. you know. So I'm I'm hopeful about uh, movie theaters. I'm not so hopeful about <laughs> movies. I think yeah. the, the movies that they're making have not been great, you know. I, um, but I guess that's you know that's what makes a movie great is that it's it's an unusual thing. Uh, but there's something about storytelling that's been lost. Uh, 
this you know current crop of directors that we have right. i don't really look forward to movies by particular directors terribly much right there's only a few whose whose movies you know are interesting to me yeah. like, on a regular basis right what's like the last movie you thought that was a must-see like in the theater you know with the crowd that, that you felt that was so you know comparable to like what movies you liked challenging my, my <laughs> porous memory but right. uh i'll say this when when the book was published about a year ago a little over a year ago i was invited to chicago for a screening of planes trains and automobiles right and uh of course when i finished working on the film it was a very difficult post-production as you know yeah and um by the time we had finished we had previewed the picture uh, you know, nine or 10 times. And I never wanted to see it again. You know, <laughs> it was just too many repetitions and, yeah. you know, just not, didn't want to see it. So when it came out in theaters, uh, I didn't go, of course. I just, I don't, right. generally, I don't go to see movies in theaters that I've worked on. Um, and, uh, but, you know, by this screening last fall, um, or a year ago, rather, uh, that was, so that was 2019, it came out in 87. So it was 32 years, 32 years had gone by. And uh, I sat and I watched it with a packed house in a theater called The Music Box in Chicago. It was a uh, cherished uh, old uh, style movie theater. Um, you know, single venues, yeah. not a multiplex or anything. Right. And uh, the crowd just was uh, ecstatic. They, they, I mean, the laughs were huge. And uh, that experience was so thrilling to me. It was like one of the best screenings of my entire career. You're sitting there and watching with, with people. So it adds a dimension to, to it that, you know, and people were laughing so hard that it was covering up the dialogue. Right. And, you know, when I worked with Herbert Ross, he would say, well, that's a good sign. If they're laughing too hard to hear the dialogue, that's, that's good news. You know, and then of course, what happens is the audience starts trying to suppress their laughter so they can hear the dialogue and then it just makes the next laugh even more explosive. So, um, no, I think, you know, movies, uh, you know, it's fine to watch movies on, TV, you know, I, I find that though that the 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 long form story that they have embarked on now, right. you know, the the eight hour story or the yeah. ten hour story, uh, very often um, feels attenuated and stretched out to fill uh, a, a, a container. Right. You know, this is the thing about you know streamers are creating content. It's like they have these big vats. They have to fill up, you know. Yeah. Give me, give me some more content. We gotta fill this thing with content. We gotta, you know. Uh, and the the stories don't get a chance to find their own length. Right. And great thing about movies, the uh, movies that I've worked on my whole life is that the story finds its own length. You don't have to slot it into forty four minutes or or whatever the demands are, you know, and I find often that the stories now feel like they have a lot of filler in them and, and the pace is slack and, and 
um, it's a different experience altogether. Um, and you don't get the kind of visual storytelling that you see in the great, right. great uh, cinematic films. Right. Have you have you watched The Mandalorian yet? I have watched some of The Mandalorian, and uh, I'm kind of blown away by the visual effects. Right. And I think it's so clever uh, to go back to the familiar elements of you know, worlds we have known already, like, right. you know, uh, Tatooine and the, the Jawas and the mm -hmm. Sand People. And, you know, I think that's really clever. Um, yeah, you know, I, don't I, want to say good, I only want to say good things about it. Right. Yeah, and I, I brought it up as an example because, you know, their, their seasons are like eight episodes, but they're not all like one hour. Some episodes are 30 minutes, some are 48 right. minutes. So you mentioned the filler. Like, I don't feel like there's any like filler in any right. of those episodes. There's not really like, they're, you know, kind of you know, scram scrambling to uh, to fill, you know, a full well, 48 minutes or an hour. They just do what they need to be done per episode. Well, that's a good point. I mean, it's in its favor, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned the book a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. Um, now your career has been, you know, very successful, very long. Uh, yes. Did you write down, like, keep a memoirs, like a journal of all these experiences? No, I didn't. Uh, I mean, I I started writing the book uh, around 20 years ago. Okay. Um, I was in Vancouver on location, and my wife had stayed behind in LA. And on the weekend, I was bored, and I've been telling these stories. You know, when you get you go on the set and you chat with people, you sort of share you know, war stories with people. And I've been telling some of these stories with great effect. Uh, and I thought, you know, I should write these. I should write these down. And uh, so I I started writing the book on the weekends during that picture. And uh, at the time, I thought I should I just make an outline of things I remember about each picture that I worked on. And I did that. Um, and then I kept writing the book for another 20 years, or another 18 years. Right. Uh, and of course, as I had more experiences, I would add to the outline. Um, you know, as I, yeah. as I had more stories to tell, I would, right. I would extend the... So the answer to the question is, for the first 30 years, I didn't keep notes. For the last 20 years, I did keep notes. Right. Did you, did you but if I hadn't if I hadn't made that outline thirty years ago and just yeah. started writing at the end, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have remembered half of what I you know, right what I did. Right now, you said you know for the first thirty years, did you go back and like kind of like talk to any people that were in you know were in the book you dealt with directors? No, no, no. no. Okay, right. I mean, so, not not to talk. I mean, I talked to them, but not about the book. But right, okay. Did any of them like read it? Uh, yeah, Brian De Palma read it. He gave me a nice blurb. J.J. Um, uh, Abrams said some nice things about it also. And right. you know, these I don't think these guys. Uh, well, maybe they do, but I I, I know Brian read it, and um, some of the the others I'm sure read the book before writing about it. Right. And yeah, I mentioned that's Brian De Palma, who you worked, I think, what, 11, 11 uh, movies with. Yeah. Uh, and the last one. Tale, the of, 
Taylor Hackford wrote some nice right. things. And yeah. J.J. Right. Abrams and, and uh, Mark Hamill and Walter Murch all wrote blurbs for the book right. cover. And I believe they all read the book. Right. Yeah. I, and you mentioned I sent a copy to, to, to George Lucas, but I haven't heard back from him. Okay. I mean, okay, you, you mentioned George. So we, I guess we can go go there now. Um, you know, editing the first two Star Wars movies, right? Well, I guess you say the fourth and fifth Star Wars movies uh, now. Um, how did you get involved with with George? Um, basically, it was through Brian. Brian and uh, George were part of a cohort of young directors who came along around the same time, and that included uh, Steven Spielberg and Marty Scorsese and uh, Coppola was a little bit older than these guys, but um, I, you know, Brian was a very uh, kind of a very social animal and very gregarious and and uh, lots of fun and, and charismatic. And um, he made connections with all these guys. And because I was working with him, I got to know them. So that's how George uh, knew about me and invited me to come work on Star Wars when they needed help. Right, because they already had an editor you know, attached to them, right? And worked quite a bit on the movie, correct, right? Well, they had a first cut done by an editor in England. And uh, they let him go when they finished principal photography because they weren't happy. When I say they, it's uh, George and his wife, Marsha, his then wife, Marsha, right. who was an editor in her own right. She had worked on American yeah. Graffiti and she worked right. on Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and uh, Taxi Driver and, you know, she was, uh, she's an excellent editor. And uh, they looked at the cut and they decided that this guy just had missed it, you know, yeah. and they didn't want to bring him back to, to uh, America. And they yeah. just figured they'd start over. So they had already hired Richard Chu out on the West Coast. And they, Marsha decided to jump in and she and Richard were recutting the picture and they quickly realized that they needed more help. So that's when they called me. Right. And you mentioned the book, how you really wanted to get involved in, in this movie. Uh, I really did. Yeah. Uh, so when you first sat down, I guess, with the real, how, how much of like bad shape was the movie? Well, it was odd because there were some scenes that were over edited. Okay. Needed to be simplified. Right. And there were other scenes where, there was no pace. They just sort of sat there and there didn't seem to be uh, any particular, didn't have particular uh, style or, and especially the pace was lacking, I thought. And there's also, uh, there, there's a certain, um, there are certain cutting points that give a film a kind of elegance and gracefulness that he had missed consistently. So that a lot of the, 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 the cutting seemed clunky. And, and um, so anyway, you know, when you're working on a film um, at some point when you've got it all together for the first mm -hmm. time, because a lot of our work is building the film first before you can start editing it. You have to have something to work on. So you, you build it up. So uh, after you've built it up, you start playing, what's wrong with this picture? Like the thing, you know, yeah. those games in the newspaper where right. they show you a picture. What, what, what's wrong with this picture? Well, there's a cow on the roof or, you know, the, the car has five wheels or, you know, whatever it is. So uh, when you're playing, 
what's wrong with this picture with, uh, with the cut that somebody else has done. It's very easy to see what's wrong with the picture because uh, you're not uh, living with any kind of preconceptions that you had. So um, basically that was my process. I would look at each scene and think, oh, this, what's what's bothering me and what's wrong with this? This is this is cut short. This needs to be extended or, or this goes on too long or you know, what's this angle is confusing in this context, you know, maybe it should come after this shot. And then now I understand, you know, so um, it's just uh, keeping yourself open and alive to uh, things that bump you and, and uh, keeping in mind possibilities of how to improve it, you know. Right. Did the first editor already incorporate those, you know, obviously now famous wipes, or is that your idea? Or is that something that George wanted? Um, well, I, th I remember George and I talking about it. So I guess they weren't in there yet. Okay. You know, I, I don't actually remember that point. But I used wipes in my very first film, a picture called Hi, Mom, okay. that I had done years before. Right. I had always liked wipes. I always thought they were kind of cool. And uh, uh, the picture Star Wars was based on, was inspired by the old Saturday matinee serials. Right. And the editing style of those days had a lot of wipes in them. So it kind of made sense. Uh, you know, you use a wipe when you're going from one, you're doing a transition from one static shot to another and putting a wipe in introduces motion into the transition. Right. And this is motion pictures we're dealing with after all. Yeah. So anything that adds motion is, is a good thing in my view. And uh, you know, sometimes you're going from a static shot to a moving shot or from a moving shot to a static shot. And those transitions can be kind of awkward. Uh, and wipes are, uh, I think, an interesting way to solve those problems. Right. Now, was there anything that you and George kind of like had like a healthy you know, discussion about what should be and what should not be in the movie? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it's a collaboration. He would, right. uh, he would work half the week down in Los Angeles at ILM. Uh, he would fly down on Monday morning and work with them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, he would come back up North where we were. And then he'd come into the cutting room on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, he'd take Sunday off and then Monday fly back down to LA. So that was his work process during the, the post. And, uh, during those three days, he would split his time between me and Richard and Marsha. So he would sit with each of us. I would show him what we'd cut in his absence and he would give his reaction. And then, you know, he would go on to the, to the next. So, um, you know, we had all sorts of discussions about what should be in and out, you know, but right. um, that's, that's normal part of the process. Right. And I know one was mentioned in the book was the original Job of the Hutt, who was played, I guess, by a terrible a Scottish actor. I think Irish, was, yeah. I, Irish that, that you, you mentioned in the book uh, that was obviously you couldn't have a, um, you know, digital Jabba yet because the technology wasn't available. Right. Because Harrison Ford pointed at him. And uh, so you had, they had to wait for the special edition. So that, that, that's, that, that scene was cut out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, if you look at the writing, it's not necessary. Right. Everything that's said in that scene has already been said in the scene with Rita. Right. Yeah. So, 
you know, bad performance, right? Uh, exposition you don't need. What do you need the scene for? Yeah. So that was as much a reason for taking it out as any. But George is a very stubborn man, and he had, you know, he clings to ideas that he had, right. and he he said at the time, he says, I, you know what I'd like to do. Like the idea just occurred to me. He says, I'd like to replace this guy with a creature. And I yeah, I thought, what a great way of dealing with a bad performance. Just right. put in a creature instead. Right. <laughs> I thought that was but then he met it turned out he meant it. I yeah. thought he was making a joke. You know? Right. Uh so anyway, that's how that's how Java the Hut was born. Right. And there were a couple like I guess ideas that can be credited to you, the color of the lightsabers. You know, compared to Luke and, and Darth Vader, um, and then Darth Vader's Tie Fighter, you wanted him to stand out. Right. So you had the, you know, the the, the, uh, the yeah. I was getting the, confused. And, like, is this Vader's ship or is this one of the other guys? And, right. And then, uh, you know, I, I realized that you know it, when I saw George's car in the parking lot, I knew he was in the building. So I thought, oh, you could identify the character by the the vehicle. So yeah. um, that was that was the genesis of that idea. Right. And I guess obviously George was thinking ahead with sequels and merchandise. So they let Darth Vader survive. And you kind of had an issue with, with that because you wanted a kind of closure. In, in yeah. The- well, I thought it was, you know, I thought it smacked of sequelism. And of course, right. he was, yeah. he was right and I was wrong. Right. <laughs> right. And he also mentioned, which is ironic now, that this was like, this is going to be a Disney movie. You know, this is going to make an X amount of money and yeah. you know, it's going to be big. And, you know, sure enough, you know, Disney's making them now. So it's kind of ironic. He actually kind of foresaw that, you know, 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, his idea was, was to uh, distribute it on the Disney model. And the Disney right. model in those days was they would bring the same picture out every seven years when you have a new crop mm-hmm. of seven-year-olds, you know, right. Uh, you bring Snow White back every seven years and then Cinderella the following year and maybe Bambi the year after yeah. that, you know, so you always had this rotating, all you need was seven films and bring right. them out every seven years and then you could play them for the kids uh, yeah. at infinitum. And that was his idea with Star Wars that it would never go on TV, it would only be in theaters and it would come back every seven years for the kids. We didn't count on the fact that it appealed to the kid in everyone. Right. You know, so um, he had to change his, uh, and of course the business was changing um, and distribution patterns were changing. When when the picture opened, I like to ask people how much they thought it made the first weekend. Right, I mean, I know now because, because of the book, but I, I right. you know, it was like a million dollars. The first dollars. weekend it made a, made a million dollars. Right. You, see, you tell that to people today, they go, what? what? Yeah. You know, how is that possible? You know? But it was a different, it was a different, uh, uh, approach to distributing right i believe it was was only what 35 theaters it was in the first week right? yeah well we were yeah. making 70 millimeter films and they had to be made in real time right because they had to lay down the soundtrack uh in real time so yeah. it took hours to to make 30 you know it took 70 hours to make 35 prints right. yeah do you remember where you were when you heard about the oscar nomination uh no <laughs> i don't but i was I was working on um, King of the Gypsies. Okay. A picture that I did with Frank Pearson directing. And uh, Dino De Laurentiis was the producer. And uh, that was, yeah, I don't remember exactly when I found out, but. uh, Right. Yeah. 
So then obviously the sequel, they start working on the sequel, Empire Strikes Back. How much pressure was on George and you guys? Because now everyone knew Star Wars. Everyone's expecting this picture to be better than the, the original. They were really looking forward to it. And I think there was a lot of pressure on George because he decided to finance the picture himself. Right. So he was taking all his winnings from the first film and pushing them out onto the table as a big gamble on the next film. And uh, he was also building Skywalker Ranch at the time. Right. Uh, purchasing the land and, and uh, drawing up the, the, uh, the architectural plans for the various buildings and so forth. So he had a lot on his plate and uh, he's taken out big loans from the bank based on uh, Empire succeeding. And what he did was he wrote a script with Larry Kasdan that was uh, extremely bold and daring because the safe thing to do would have been to make a carbon copy right. of the first film, you know, uh, a lot of running around in a big battle scene at the end. Uh, he didn't do that. And uh, he made a very different film that was essentially uh, the second act of a three-act play. Right. So, uh, you know, the the rule for the end of a second act in, in, in these things is, you know, you get your hero, put him up a tree and set the tree on fire. Right. That's the end of act two, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so that's what we did. Uh, you know, they've been separated. Han is frozen. They're on a ship floating in yeah. space somewhere. And, you know, it's not, it's the kind of ending that, uh, very daring, very bold. And, uh, uh, and it worked out, you know, it was, but uh, hats off to George for yeah. doing something so original and, and courageous, you know. What was your reaction finding out that Darth Vader was uh, Luke Skywalker's father? I was surprised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. How, like how everybody long, else. Yeah. How long did you have to keep that a secret? How long before the movie came oh, out? I don't know. We. Uh, it was revealed to me in post. It wasn't. It wasn't told to the crew in right. England. Uh, it was a secret that shared by just the, the post people. We, we all knew it. And, right. you, know, for, you know, several months yeah. we knew it, but we all knew it was it was a big revelation that we could not share. Yeah, <laughs> right. But like you're just like just working on movies and like with you know surprise ending, big reveals. I mean, how difficult is it? Just keep tight lips, and not even tell anybody. That, is that just part of the makeup of an editor? You have to have like, you know, <laughs> tight lips. Well, we don't meet a lot of people, you know. Oh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Editors tend to be introverts. Okay. We're quite happy working in a room by oh. ourselves. Right. You know, so, yeah. uh, and we didn't have social media back then. So right. there was no temptation to. Yeah. Guess what? Right. Know? Yeah. How many hours uh, like were shot? Like the, the the first cut of Empire, how long was it? Do you remember? It was very close. I mean, we locked the picture four weeks after the end of production, so okay. it, it, it it you know it was very very easy and quick. Right. Although the production went three thirteen right. weeks over. Yeah. So there was a lot of time during production to yeah. refine and you know, but uh, it only took another four weeks to lock the picture and when i say locked it was locked that was it right so um, yeah yeah 
Now I know you didn't work on Jedi, uh, you know, different director. What was yeah. like your, your like reaction to the movie? Uh, I thought it was not a total win. Right. What like what what parts felt that way? Well, I don't want to say anything bad about a, about a, a a franchise that's been so good to me. <laughs> right. Know? Okay. But I have to say, I was really surprised. To find out what James Earl Jones looked like, <laughs> right? <laughs> he didn't. He didn't look like what I expected. No, he was a little pale, right? <laughs> yeah, right. but um, some other movies like you worked on that I, you know, like. But there was one that I I didn't. But it's kind of a has like a sentimental spot for me. It's Mission to Mars, because uh-huh. that was the last movie I saw in the theater. My grandfather. We used to go to a lot of movies together. That was the last one he we saw it together before he died. Uh, I w- wasn't really a fan of the movie. I thought it just didn't work. Hope we didn't yet. kill him. No. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll send uh you know issue to Brian the Palmer on that one. But um, are there like movies like I know you you'll read a script and you'll have to like it before you accept it you mentioned that and then vampire movies which you won't do uh are there movies like i have to yeah right exactly you need the job right (laughs) sometimes you gotta pay the bills right right but are there like ones that you read the script you 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 thought it was good but as the movie's being developed and you're editing you feel it's just not gonna work yeah i mean that's what happened on pluto nash i read this really funny script and then I show up and there's a new script and it's not funny. So yeah, that was that was one notable one. Right. And then and then it just becomes a paycheck, right? No, then it becomes a nightmare. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But one that did work, but like it took, you know, quite some editing, which you mentioned before was planes, trains, automobiles, which yeah. was like almost four hour cut, right? It's like three hours and forty five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. was that the most difficult uh you had to work on uh it's some uh, up among them you know right. uh, i think it's i haven't thought about this so i'm just sort of spitballing but i would yeah. say it's it's the most difficult one that turned out well right because <laughs> yeah. I, I was happy with the result right i've worked on some other difficult ones that was you know turned out badly right so uh, I think, you know, of the ones that were hard to do, that was the one that turned out best, I'd say. Right. I had a Larry Hankin on my show a couple months ago, who obviously was the cabbie in the, in the movie. And he was oh, yeah. telling that John used to shot like a second scene in the cab that just went on forever. And like, yeah, yeah showed it to like friends at a party. And Larry never saw this. So, yeah, and he was like surprised when someone came up to him. Oh, I saw this at John Hughes's house. The screen like, really? I, I never saw this. I know they shot this and they kept it rolling because, you know, that, that was John Hughes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that scene was, I, I think I describe it in detail in the book. Yeah. Uh, it was a shocker how much he shot because as it was written, it was just like a quarter page. Right. You know, and then, after cutting together like a three or four minute scene in the cab, it came back down to about a quarter page. Right. Yeah. What, what was working with John Hughes like? Well, he, uh, <coughs> excuse me, he was very mercurial. Right. 
and uh, he's a brilliant uh, writer and extremely funny. And he, there were days I'd be unable to work because he was making me laugh uh, the whole time. He right. Just keep coming out with joke after joke after joke. And I just I couldn't catch my breath. I'd be crying, you know. And uh, he loved to make me laugh. And uh, uh, and then other times he would get into these dark moods and, you know, he hated everything. And, um, but, you know, he was a brilliant artist uh, yeah. uh, with a gift for, um, uh, he would connect with his muse almost like a, he would write like he was taking dictation. You know, he, he, he would write as fast as he could type right. uh, for hours on end. Uh, which is really extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Larry also told a story how he, him and uh, John Hughes and his wife and somebody else went to a party and John just sat there just quiet for like an hour, hour and a half while everyone else, you know, was enjoying the party. Then John just got up and said, okay, we're going and just left. And that was the only words he said the whole night. So Larry was like, oh, this is a little strange, but I guess that was John. Now, another one was Ferris Bueller. And I know you mentioned in the book how that's like, probably even more than Star Wars, that's the one that people bring up to you the most. Yeah, it seems to be uh, much beloved. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the parade scene would mention how um, you kind of get caught lighting in a bottle with uh, just the reactions of people dancing, especially that one construction worker that that, yeah, yeah. that was caught and you, you got extremely lucky. Um, was, was that an easy, how long was that, you know, first cut of, of that movie? Compared to what about Yeah, well, that was the longest first cut I'd ever done up to that point in my career. It was two hours and 45 minutes. Wow. Now, there are a lot of uh, monologues right. uh, to camera. Uh, there still are, you know, yeah. if I was talking to the camera. But there were some, uh, you, you know, others that were, um, you know, clearly, you know, a picture that long, you have to take stuff out. You don't bring it down by trimming. Mm. You know, you have to do some major... Uh, surgery you know you have to right. take stuff out and just yeah. um but i think it that you know it worked out well yeah no it's 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 a great movie you watch it a lot and it's, are you surprised like you can sit down you know in front of the tv you know your movies run on a loop pretty much can you can you sit down and like actually watch some of these or no you just got to change the channel well you know i generally um if I come across something that's playing, I'll watch it for a little while. And then at a certain point I go, okay, that's enough of that. You know, right. and then yeah. I'll move on to something else. But um, occasionally, um, what was I watching? I, I think it was Ferris, you know, I, I tuned into Ferris and then I started watching it and I just watched it all the way to the end because hadn't seen it in a while. Right. So, um, you know, and mentioned the um, obviously the scene at the end where he comes out of his room. You go, everyone, get out of here already. Yeah, uh, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. yeah ex exactly. Was uh, you had the idea of having the uh, school bus scene with Rooney on it, playing with the credits, so people would stay there while you know, kind of a bridge and for you know for that scene, which was actually a yeah. tremendous idea. Well, it was a, such a funny scene, but when yeah. it came in the story, he just brought the picture to a halt. Right. So uh, we took it, we had taken it out and I thought it's really a shame that we, uh, that's such a funny scene. Uh, but, you know, it also, and it plays kind of slow, that scene. A lot of it is Rooney's slow burn, you know, I mean, yeah. so you can't speed that stuff up, but right. in the 
context of a picture where Ferris is racing back to the house, you know, and you know, you can, it just didn't work in context. So uh, it came to me to stick it, you know, at the end. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, like, I guess one of your earlier ones, which actually I was watching my wife a couple weeks ago, uh, Carrie, and uh-huh. yeah, my, my daughter who is going to be turning 11 uh, the next month uh, was watching it for a little bit. And we had to make sure to tell her that, you know, this is not real. This is all movie, you know, because my wife's been doing that forever now with, with horror movies. So which, I think 11 is a little young for Carrie, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I thought so, too. But, uh, you know, she, we kind of, you know, she kind of left the room after like five minutes. And of course, it was the prom scene. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, um, and I know the prom you, scene comes quite late in the film. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she didn't watch the whole movie with us. She kind of came into the room like oh. almost before the prom scene. But you I mentioned. I was thinking how, about the shower scene at the beginning. Cause, oh, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. No, that, yeah. We wouldn't have let her see that at all. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. But um, now you mentioned how um, you weren't really a fan of horror movies. Not really, yeah, no. You know, and working on them and how Brian always had these ideas for these these crazy horror movies. Uh, yeah, and, you know, Brian is brilliant at visual storytelling. Right. But he has this different sensibility, you know. Uh, so uh, I suppose if I had stayed in New York and I could have cut every movie he ever directed and not taken any other jobs, he would, certainly would have kept hiring me, I'm sure. Right. Uh, but uh, I was interested in working, you know, of course, once I did Star Wars, there were all sorts of uh, opportunities opened up that hadn't been before, you know, so, uh, you know, like I say, uh, after Star Wars, I worked on King of the Gypsies with Frank Pearson. Frank was a screenwriter who'd written Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis had produced, you know, Fellini Mm -hmm. films, uh, the cinematographer was Sven Nickfist, who shot all of Ingmar Bergman's films, you know. Mm-hmm. So to be hired on a picture like that was yeah. thrilling to me, you know. Right. Uh, Peter Maas wrote the screenplay. He had written Serpico, you know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, to be able to work with people like that in the business was uh, tremendously uh, important to me and exciting to me, you know, uh, working with the big guys. Right, yeah. <laughs> Now you mentioned how like one of them kind of got away was uh, Steven Spielberg. Hey, you never had, you had a chance to work with him. Yeah, well, he offered me uh, Close Encounters, but I was working on Carrie at the time. Mm-hmm. So I had to turn him down. Right. And, yeah, and that kind of happens a lot, I imagine, right? Like where you don't have work for a while, but then when you do have a picture, another one comes up, another one comes up. So you kind of have to choose then. Well, my rule was always once I commit to something and that's it. Right. Yeah. I've never left the picture to go do another one. Right. Uh, unless I bent the rule a little when I did Mission Impossible because the picture I was working mm-hmm. on, Source Code, right. was pretty much done. Uh, and I was going to be working very close by. And if there was any problem, I could just run yeah. over and right. deal with it. But that was the only time uh, that I left the picture before it was over. Okay. Yeah, it's Source Code was a, it's a fantastic movie. That that was really really always, well, well done. I always like Source Code. Yeah, and then um, Duncan Jones, who I mean, did Moon, which I love Moon. That's that's a, a yeah. unbelievable movie. Moon's uh, terrific. 
Yeah. Are there any directors? I mean, this is probably, I don't want to really put you on the spot, but I'll, I'll ask you anyway. Uh, any directors who you kind of wanted to work with and then your opinion of them changed? You don't have to name names, but just dealing with them. Uh, wanted to work with and did work with them? Did, did work with them, but your opinion of them kind of, you know, soured a little bit. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that, that's fine. I don't, I don't know because <laughs> no, you, you wrote the book and, you know, a, a credit to the book is you didn't, you know, what's it called? The the negative thing. things about people, which is good. You know, that means you're a real, a real nice guy, but you, you told the truth. Well, partly, that's okay. partly true, but, right. but the truth is uh, when I brought the book to a literary agent, uh, a woman named Charlotte Sheedy, she's in her 80s. She's okay. uh, Ali Sheedy's mother. She has right. a literary agency in New York. She's legendary. And she said, um, I'm not interested in any score settling. So anything that's, that's yeah. like score settling in your book, you want you got to take out. I thought score set. I didn't think anything was, you know, to me, it yeah. was just telling the truth of what right. happened. Right. But, you know, when there's an unhappy experience, it yeah. sounds like score settling. Mm -hmm. uh, at the, around the same time, James Comey came out with his book about Trump. Right. And he described his orange face and his little hands. And, <laughs> uh, and he caught a lot of flack for doing that. Right. And I thought, you know, uh, this is a, there's a lesson for me here, which is, you know, yeah don't throw shade on people because you're likely to throw even more shade on yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I decided to, you know, and then the other thing is when you've had an unhappy experience with somebody, I just didn't want to give them oxygen. Right. You know? I said, well, you yeah. know, and the other aspect of it is that uh, I've had so much good luck in my career. You know, right. I've had been so fortunate to work on so many, projects that turned out to be really terrific pictures that nobody wants to hear me complain about this right. guy didn't listen to me yeah. or this guy made me do this or yeah he was he was you know he was rude to me or you know he was a jerk or you know they don't want to hear that right no no, no moaning on the yacht yeah <laughs> exactly no, yeah no whining on the yacht because i've been so lucky nobody wants to hear about my complaints about this guy or that guy yeah right and there was one uh I guess one guy who had an up and down relationship, but it was very colorful. It was uh, Betty Herman, who uh, was the composer of Psycho, and he worked with a couple other movies as well. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, was, what was the other well, one? He was uh, a genius. You yeah. know, he, he was a genius. You know, and and I was, I respected him so much, and he uh, got to the situation where he misunderstood. He thought I had said something that I hadn't, and yeah, and it just became a horrible experience <laughs> right but then i was able to retrieve it on the next picture i did with him and it all worked out in the end but mm -hmm. uh th these things happen you know right and there's some movies you worked on that actually they made remakes of you know, i think carrie and uh yeah i think they made a footloose remake uh yeah do you even Steel give magnolias those, yeah do you even give those time of day or are you curious no no okay <laughs> no. right yeah I haven't seen any of them. Right. No, probably probably better off that way. <laughs> I just thought, why bother? You know. Right. Yeah. Now, finished product, sitting down and watching it. What's your like favorite movie? No, not the one you're most proud of, but like just one sitting down. You like really enjoy the the movie itself. 
This is like, what's your favorite Beatles I, song? Right, yeah, or favorite <laughs> kid, right? <laughs> I mean, I have if I haven't seen them in a long time, I'm sort of curious to see them. And yeah, uh, I watched the King of the Gypsies uh, not that long ago for the first time in many, many years. Right, and I really liked it. I liked it a lot better than I remembered liking it. Right. Um, but uh, I love Phantom of the Paradise. Um, Obsession. The Hughes pictures are right. always fun. Right. Now, can um, you? Yeah. Can you sit down like without your editor's hat and just watch a movie? Not one of your own, but just sit down. Is it, is it hard to do that? Well, I think I know too much about the filmmaking process to watch it as you know an ordinary audience member. Right. Yesterday, I watched the new Tom Hanks film. It's a western. Okay. And I was fixated on his hats. Right. Because the hat didn't match. You know, he had one hat. It was sort of like uh, it sloped down. Yeah. It had a brim that sloped down in the front and in the back, and the other was had sort of a brim that rolled up. It was sort of rolled up yeah. on the you know and I. One was black and one was brown. And I kept looking and I said, oh, well, he's wearing that hat. You know, and then yeah. he's in a horse. He's on a horseback riding across the prairie yeah. or through the desert. And I'm thinking, where's the other hat? Where does he keep the other hat? You right. know? So, yeah. Uh, and then he takes off at a, you know, gallop. And I think, oh, that's a stunt rider, of yeah. course, you know. Uh, you can't help, you know, if you know too much about the process, you can't really just just turn it off. You know? Right. Yeah. But now, that said, if the picture's really good, you don't notice those things. Yeah. Right. So I guess you don't like the movie. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of boring, I thought. Right. Yeah. Now, I mean, obviously, the technology has changed, you know, now uh, with, I guess, you've been working on Avids, right? Compared yeah. There's yeah. Uh, the Technology make the job easier for you now? Well, I wrote an article for the Editor's Guild magazine years ago called How the Avid Made the Job, uh, Made the Work Easier right. and the Job Harder. Uh, right. So it's a wonderful tool for the artist. You know, you can do things that you couldn't mm -hmm. dream of doing with just film. Right. But because of its nature, it tends to be more inclusive uh, of people. Uh, who you don't really want interfering with the process, like studio executives and producers. Right. Yeah. So, um, so it's it's sort of a, a plus and a minus, you know. Right. Like obviously, you need to know the equipment and be you know obviously efficient in in running it. But well, the tools don't really matter. I mean, okay. editing is a is a mental process that really doesn't depend on the tools. You know, okay. like the same way that writing doesn't depend on the tools. You know, nobody says Shakespeare would have written better plays if he'd worked on a right. word processor. You know, yeah, he had a quill and a pot of ink. You know, and he did okay. Right. So, uh, not to compare myself to Shakespeare, I'm just saying. No, that, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, uh, the tools aren't really important. It's the sense sensibility that's at play that that matters. Right. Now, did like being an editor kind of like help you write your book? Well, it's about being an editor, so I wouldn't no, have I mean, a book unless I were, you know. No, but you, you know what I mean? Like, just being able to, like, cut things out and, you know, kind of... Well, I had a very good book editor to work okay. with. Right. Uh, Jennifer Shute. She was terrific, and she helped shape the final uh, 
help you know get to the final shape of the book. So I uh, had a lot of help. Right. All right. Well, I think it did. It did help. You know, I mean, uh, putting Carrie before Star, you know, separating Carrie from Star Wars. Those pictures were consecutive, but yeah. uh, I separated them by ten years of experiences in the right. book. So uh, that was at the suggestion of my literary agent, who had he was not a film guy, he, and and he said, "You got to get to Carrie in the first fifty pages." Okay. And I said, well, how can I do that? I mean, the question that most people ask me all the time is how did you get in the business? Right. So if I get to carry in the first 50 pages, you're asking me to cut out the whole, you know, story of how I got in the yeah. business and which is what people most care about. Right. So Jennifer said, well, why don't you start with Carrie and then jump back? And I said, no, that'll never work because, well, well let me try it. Let's see, you know, and then it, yeah. of course it worked out great. You know? Right. So, I think one of the things I learned as an editor is that uh, you should try everything because experiencing something is different from imagining how you're going to experience it. Right. So the actual, when you actually experience it, you have a different reaction perhaps than you thought you might have. Okay. So that's how that worked out. And, and the reason he wanted me to have Carrie in the first 50 pages is that readers for the publishing houses that mm -hmm. he was going to send the book to only read the first 50 okay. pages right and carrie was the first movie that i worked on that he ever heard of so yeah you, thought it's, you got to get that in the first 50 pages right yeah so uh so that's how that happened that's smart see i didn't ask you how you got the business because i want people to read the book because it's it's fascinating you know and, you know i don't want, i want people to actually read the book and not have everything you know in, in this interview because you know there's a lot of other stuff you worked on that i want to ask you about but People got to read the book. So, thank you. It's on yeah, Amazon and Audible. Yeah, Audible. But there's one more I'll ask you about is yeah. uh, falling down, which yeah. I feel like everyone in 2020 had a little falling down in them, to a certain extent. You know, not as extreme as defense, but you know, to a, a little bit. Um, working with Joel Schumacher, and you know, you give some great stories in the book, which we'll, we'll keep in the book. But did you appreciate that movie for what it was? Yeah, I, I always thought that uh, it would have more traction than it has had. Uh, people don't seem to talk or write about it very much. You know, right. I thought it was an interesting uh, moment in time because it captured the character of defense in a way is sort of like the, the prototypical Trump voter. Right. Uh, you know, a white guy has been displaced by changes in society and and uh, reacts by turning to violence. Um, yeah. So I thought it was very, you know, thoughtful. I, I, you know, it was also unusual for me because I tended, I don't know why, but I tended not to get offered dramas terribly much. Uh, I was offered comedies and action right. films and, and, uh, various kinds of genre films, but not, not too many dramas, straight dramas. Right. And, uh, that was one that, um, that I thought turned out really well. Yeah. And no, that's a fantastic movie. And anytime it's on, I'm like, I'm, I'm glued to it. Cause it's, you know, the acting he's Michael Douglas was great. And, and then I know, I guess there was some trepidation about him portraying that kind of character that people wouldn't go for it. Well, when they sent him the script, they offered him the, the devout part. 
okay. he read it and he said, no, no, I want to play defense. Right. So that was, uh, that was actually a little bit confusing to audiences because they figure Michael Douglas is the star. Yeah. He must be the good guy, but he's right. not the good guy. Exactly. You know? So, uh, but it was interesting. It was sort of uh, interesting ambiguity about it. You know? Yeah. Now, okay, one more. Uh, when they, when George decided to make the prequels, the conversation will come up. You were, they were talking to him about that or no? I, I never got a call. No? Okay. Were you surprised? Not really. I was living in LA and he was up north. Okay. Right. I just since he was directing them that maybe he would, you know, come come back to you for it. He should have, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You could have wiped Jar Jar Pinks right off. <laughs> but, well, I, I think that, you know, uh, it would have been a value to, to have somebody, uh, you know, uh, who knows? Yeah. Anyway. Right. Uh, I thought I thought he. I thought there wasn't enough story in those first three. I thought yeah. those, those three films would have made one interesting film. Right. I agree. And in fact, I sort of liked the last one, last of the three best. Yeah, because it had most of the story in it. Yeah, so I mean, I just didn't think there was enough story uh, to to support three films, right. and the origin stories are always the the, the most interesting ones. You know how the Lone yeah. Ranger got his mask. Right. You know, uh, how Darth Vader became Darth Vader. That's a really great story. But uh, the two fix two pictures before that, they just weren't uh, sufficiently interesting. Right. What did you think of the, the last trilogy? Uh, well, I thought the first one was was a great way to link back to the original film. Right. Uh, and then after that, I think it's sort of. Uh, I thought the films overall sort of lost the quality that was important in the first film. And that was a sense of fun. Right. And I think that's what the Mandalorian got right. Right. That they reintroduced a comic element, some comic relief uh, to help make the stuff work. Because I think, you know, Star Wars without C-3PO is, is grim, you know. Yeah. Uh, you have to have some some comedy in, in these things right to really make them work and i thought that the mandalorian got that right yeah uh, absolutely but there wasn't there wasn't that fun element in the other films right. in in the late in the last few yeah. uh right uh, feature films but the book is a long time ago in a cutting room far far away it's on audible amazon probably get a hardcover too but it, it's a fantastic read and listen and paul i appreciate the time and I appreciate the attention. And a special thanks to Paul for joining me today. Check out his memoirs a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. It's wherever books are found. It's also on Audible. And if you have a guest suggestion, hit me up on Twitter at the first all one nine, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes, not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. A new episode comes out every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then.